0: Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Setting aside our series from the Gospel of Luke for a couple of Sundays as we prepare to celebrate the key events in all of history. And I'm referring, of course, to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key events of all history. All history prior to that time looked ahead to it, and all events since that time look back to it. And today, as Greg read and as Dave led in songs, all dealing with what we call Palm Sunday, commemorating the day that Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And the crowds cheered hoping this was their Messiah. They took palm branches and the fronds of the palm trees and would wave them, and thus palm Sunday. But the cheering of the crowds wouldn't last long because it wouldn't take too long that week before they were clamoring for Him to be crucified. Jesus encountered a lot of darkness that week. More than Ironic that the one who called himself, I am the light of the world, would be subjected to so much darkness, but there was darkness all through the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. And today, we're going to take a look at some of the different kinds of darkness, the different hours of darkness that he experienced. So I want you to notice, first of all, the darkness of deception the darkness of deception, because there were people who basically deceived themselves because of preconceptions and misconceptions of who Jesus was and of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would be like. On Sunday of that week, that first day of the week, the multitudes had gathered in the streets of Jerusalem to proclaim the arrival of their Messiah, they hoped. John 12, 12 and 13 tells us that a great crowd heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That's what they're hoping for. But you know that their conception of a Messiah was not the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. They're looking for the military leader. The political leader, the guy that would lead them in triumph over all their enemies, kick out Rome so they're no longer oppressed and under Roman domination, and set up the kingdom like it was back in the glory days. That's what they're looking for, and they're hoping Jesus is the one. I mean, he's a miracle worker. He can do anything. And so the Jewish people lined the streets waving these palm branches. Here was their king. They couldn't wait for him to take the throne of David, their greatest king, or even Solomon. But instead of marching in on a big white horse with all of his soldiers behind him, he comes in humbly and meekly riding on the colt of a donkey. And they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. They were in the dark. They had deceived themselves and blinded themselves by their own ambitions, their own unbelief, as well as their misconceptions about what to expect the Messiah to be. They missed who Jesus really was and what He had come to do. He had come to save them, but not from Rome. He came to save them from their sins. But it wasn't just the people that were in the dark that had deceived themselves John 12, 16 says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So even his own disciples that had been with him for three years that Jesus had handpicked, personally selected, those closest to him, they too had become engulfed in the darkness of their own Deception. And so as the week progresses, and as we celebrate it at this table, it was the time for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus had preparations made in an upper room, and they arrived there. And that evening, just before the Passover feast was to begin, Jesus quietly got up took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. None of the disciples had thought to do what no one else had done. Usually there was a servant on hand that would take care of that, but apparently the servant that normally would have done it was not there. And none of the disciples even thought about doing that evidently those that were the lord's personally chosen disciples none of them took the initiative to wash each other's feet so jesus does it and he sets the example of leading and serving and washes their feet but peter objects peter says you're not going to ever wash my feet lord but jesus said peter if i don't wash you you have no part in me And again, because Peter was in the dark about what was really happening. That's why he spoke up as he did. And he's not alone because when Jesus finished, he told them to follow his example and wash one another's feet. And to serve one another, he said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Well, he went on to tell them during the course of the meal that one of them would betray, him. One who thought maybe his deception would go unnoticed. But Jesus knew. They stared at each other in utter disbelief and wondering who it was. And they would say, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And so Peter, who's probably sitting down on the end of the tables where they recline, motions to John, who would be leaning on his left arm up against Jesus. John would lean up and look into Jesus' eye and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it would be the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And he dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas. So evidently, where was Judas sitting? Evidently, to Jesus' left, right beside him, you would think. Well, after Judas got up and left, Jesus told the remaining disciples he was going to be with them for only a little while longer. And So Peter asked him, well, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. To which Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said to him, will you really lay down your life for me? Peter, you've deceived yourself. I tell you the truth before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so when you come to John chapter 14, it opens with the disciples dismayed and disheartened that Jesus was leaving them. So he shares those immortal words of encouragement. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you there, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also, and you know the way to the place where I am going. But Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered and said, I am the way. The truth and the life no man comes to the father but by me well Philip in verse 8 said Lord show us the father and that'll be enough for us but Jesus said have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me Philip he who has seen me has seen the father how do you say show us the father So even though these men were so close to Jesus, they had deceived themselves by their own misconceptions and preconceptions and were completely in the dark as to what was going on. The darkness of deception. But that leads us to the darkness of betrayal. In John 13 and verse 27, after Jesus had dipped that piece of bread in the dish and given it to Judas... Verse 27 says, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor, which was a common act of of benevolence during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. There are three statements that stand out to me from that text. One is, was that as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve have sinned and eaten of the forbidden fruit and Eve says the serpent betrayed me God is cursing the serpent and the first prophecy of Jesus of the Messiah is given in Genesis 315 where God says to the serpent I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed you will bruise his heel and he will bruise or crush your head Well, the time was drawing near for the serpent, for Satan, to bruise the heel of Jesus through his death. And so Satan enters into Judas. A second statement that stands out to me is that Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. There were times throughout the ministry of Jesus where he would leave and and escape almost because the scripture would say, His hour had not yet come. Now it has. What you do, do quickly. And the third statement is that Judas went out and it was night. Which means it's dark. The darkness of betrayal. And listen, there is no greater darkness in the world than when you walk away from Jesus. And that's what Judas did. So Jesus here must face the betrayal of a false friend. But you remember that Judas wasn't the only one that betrayed Jesus, was he? He wasn't the only one. He wasn't the first. By no means would he be the last. John 6, 64 says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. They say every man has this price. Well, for Judas, it was 30 silver coins. That's all it took for him to turn his back on the Lord. But is there any worse feeling, any darker feeling than being betrayed by a friend or at least someone that you thought was your friend? It hurts, and it stings. Later that night, Judas would lead an angry mob to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would betray Jesus with a kiss. Here he was, he was one of the twelve, personally selected by the Lord, one who held a position of trust among the disciples. I mean, he was keeper of the money bag for the disciples, even though he wasn't real honest with that. And yet he used a symbol of friendship and affection, a kiss, to betray the best man he ever knew, a man that he knew was completely innocent. Dr. Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, Judas is famous famous for betraying Jesus, but he really betrayed himself. He kissed the door to heaven and then went to hell. But Jesus didn't only face the betrayal of a false friend, he also encountered the betrayal of a faithful follower. In Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus said, "...this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered." And that's exactly what happened when Jesus was later arrested. All the disciples fled for their lives. In fact, one of them fled with nothing on. You would have thought that at least Peter would have stood his ground, right? You would expect him to never betray Jesus... I mean, he told the Lord, even even if everybody else leaves you, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the scripture says in Matthew 26, 35, all the other disciples said the same. So Peter would be the one that would be faithful to the end, right? I mean, that's the way the story ought to go, that you would think it would go. But later on in the garden, when the mob shows up to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And I've heard all the arguments that Peter, well, Peter was a poor swordsman because he aimed for his head. And also that, well, you notice that Peter didn't pick on a soldier. He went after a servant. Well, I don't care about any of that. At least Peter was willing to fight for Jesus. But later on, that former schwasbuckling servant of Christ is backpedaling in the courtyard, the courtyard of the high priest, because a young maiden asks if he's a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And in a matter of minutes, Peter three times denies knowing the Lord and even curses when he does so. And immediately the rooster crowed. Luke's account says Jesus turned and looked at Peter right then. So Jesus faced the darkness of betrayal. Jesus also faced the darkness of injustice. Jesus faced the injustice of illegal trials, false accusations, and absolute lies. Matthew 26 verse 59 says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Tells you what kind of men they were, right? Looking for false evidence. Anything they could come up with, they didn't care as long as they could put Jesus to death. And so first they bring him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was the one that the Jewish people really considered to be the high priest. He was the one that they had selected or that had been anointed among the Jews. But after they take him to Annas, they then take him to Caiaphas the son-in-law of Annas, who the Romans had appointed to be the high priest because they could manipulate him. You see, in order to kill Jesus legally, they had to get permission from Pilate because the Jews did not have the authority to execute anyone. Only the Romans did, so they had to get the approval of Pilate. So after they take him to Annas, then Caiaphas, then they take him to Pilate. But Pilate has no interest in Jesus or what he had done. He only wanted to keep his job by keeping the peace. He knew this was a phony trial from the beginning. It was based on false charges and fabricated accusations. And there are three verses that I think really give us a snapshot of Pilate's perspective on Jesus. and All from Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 19 says, While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat... His wife sent him this message Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. (laughs) Pilate probably didn't expect to get that message. Don't have anything to do with him. Stay away from him. Leave him alone. I had a dream today and I've suffered greatly because of that dream. It was about him. Then in verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 27, Pilate asked, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all, <coughs> they all answered, Crucify Him. Why? What crime has He committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify Him. Pilate had been charged by Rome to administer justice, but here he becomes a part of the darkness of injustice that Jesus experienced. And then in verse 24, When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Now, it was the governor's custom to release a prisoner at the feast to try to maintain good relations with the Jewish people. So Pilate had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas brought out and asked the crowd which of the two that he should release to them. He must have thought that surely they will choose Jesus because Jesus hadn't really done anything wrong and Barabbas has done everything wrong. In fact, he was a murderer. And yet the religious leaders swayed the crowd and they shouted for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. Well, John 19 tells us that Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus flogged in an attempt to appease the crowd. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and a purple robe on him. They began mocking him over and over again. Hail, King of the Jews. And in verse 4 it says, Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. Maybe thinking since he had had him beaten, the crowd would finally say, Okay, let him go. But the chief priests and officials shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate finally said, Shall I crucify your king? And they responded, We have no king but Caesar. What a lie. A week earlier they were hoping Jesus would overthrow Caesar and the whole Roman Empire. Now they claim allegiance to Caesar just to get rid of Jesus. So, Jesus suffered the darkness of injustice. Then he had to face the darkness of physical suffering. Again, the 19th chapter of John. And listen no one has ever suffered like Jesus. No one. Ever. Anywhere. He was dragged from one illegal trial to another, deprived of sleep that night. He was struck, slapped, beaten hit, spit upon, mocked, and then he was flogged. And unlike the Jews, who had a 39-stripe limit, because the law said only 40 times, so they would do the 40 minus 1 unless they would miscounted and violate the law, the Romans didn't have any kind of limit. When they whipped or squirred someone, it usually lasted until the victim died or was near death. And even if the victim died, as many did from the result of the flogging, they would still nail them to the cross and crucify them for everyone to see. And the whip that they used, the flagellum, would have pieces of glass or bone or metal tied into the thongs and it would just literally shred a person's skin so deeply that oftentimes you could see the bones inside. Or even the internal organs exposed. And the loss of blood would be severe, of course. Then they twisted four to six inch thorns into a crown and forced it onto his head and into his scalp and skull. They made him carry the heavy wooden beam of his own cross through the streets. And when Jesus fell beneath the load, they pressed into service a man by the name of Simon from Cyrene to carry to cross the rest of the way. And then at the place of the skull, called Golgotha, or Calvary, they crucified him by driving six to eight inch spikes through the base of his hands and the middle of his feet. And they hoisted his barely recognizable, savagely beaten, bloodied body up in the air where everyone could see. And for six excruciating hours, He experienced the most inconceivable pain known to man just not the physical pain but the spiritual pain as well all while being mocked and verbally abused by those who came to witness this shameful sideshow that was being put on by the very people that Jesus came to save and from the cross in the midst of the darkness of the suffering Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting the 22nd Psalm, he also spoke these unforgettable words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Finally, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and died. Whereupon he faced the darkness of death. There are actually two deaths recorded in the gospel accounts of this story. One was horribly tragic, the other holy and redemptive. One was completely unnecessary, the other one was absolutely necessary. One was selfish, the other was selfless. One was brought on by sin and guilt, the other for the forgiveness of sin and removing guilt. The first death is recorded in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have betrayed innocent blood, he said. And he threw the money into the temple and left and went away and hanged himself. The second death is recorded in John 19, verse 30. Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The suicidal death of a greedy, selfish betrayer, followed by the sacrificial, selfless death of the very Son of the living God. You know, Jesus didn't start a work on the cross nor did he continue a work on the cross. He finished a work on the cross. The work the Father gave him to do, the Father's plan from the foundation of the world to send his Son to become a sin offering to save the world from sin, that work was completed on the cross when Jesus said, It is finished. His death on the cross was the completion of the mission. His Father gave, gave Him to save us from our sin. But even with the completion of the mission, the story isn't over yet. Jesus is dead, yes. He's on the cross, yes. And Luke 23, says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So a strange darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. Jesus faced the darkness of death, and it sure seems dark, and it sure seems like defeat. But from that cross, from the death of Christ, springs our very hope. Because you see, that was Friday. But Sunday's coming. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would come and take the body of Jesus and lay it in a brand new tomb, and... Some of the women that traveled with Jesus would note the place and make plans to return following the Sabbath to anoint the body with spices and perfume, but that was Friday and Sunday's coming. A large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb to keep everybody out and to make sure the body stayed in. But That was Friday and Sunday's coming. Friday was a day filled with bad news for the followers of Jesus. But that was Friday. And Sunday's coming. And next Sunday we'll see the conclusion of the story. But for this morning, we come to a time of decision. Jesus faced several hours of darkness that week. If you have never accepted Him as your Savior, because that's what He came to do, His work was completed at the cross, if you've never accepted Him as Savior and Lord, you are living in darkness, the darkness of sin. And if you will accept Him and the sacrificial death that He did, He he accomplished to save you from your sin then you can walk in the light of life. Life more abundant than you've ever known it. But that decision is yours. The good news is that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news the world needs to hear. And the crux of the gospel, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news that every person needs to hear, needs to believe, and needs to obey, and needs to respond to. And if you've not done that today, why not? And why not right now? Come to Christ, let Him forgive your sins, Let Him wash them away as you're immersed in water for the remission of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of everlasting life. If you haven't done that, do it today. Or at least come and make preparation to talk to us and make plans to do that. Let's stand and sing.